Hey everybody, welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and we are coming uh, close to the end here of our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. I think we have have this episode and two more, is what I think uh, will be. And then that'll actually be the end of the the season here. Um, My wife and I are about to have our fourth baby, and so uh, we're actually traveling back to the United States. Actually, I'm recording this right now the day before we leave, and so recording a bunch of these ahead of time, and uh, so just trying to finish up here, and so a bunch of these will be playing while we're uh, running while we are gone, and um, then when I get back, I'll uh, hop right on, but there will be a little bit of a break uh, once we end Ezra and Nehemiah until uh, until I'm back, and so I may try and see if I can squeeze one more in, maybe another theological reflection or something like that. But uh, we'll see if I have time here today before before I leave. Um, but with that, let's jump into uh, Nehemiah chapter eight, and uh, we'll get going. Welcome back. Let's just jump right in here to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, if you remember, um, the the structure of the Ezra-Nehemiah scroll as a whole has kind of three major sections. Uh, the first is what we've dealt with thus far. That's Ezra 1 through Nehemiah chapter 7. And that dealt with the, the three waves, so to speak, of the exiles returning, rebuilding, and restoring uh, centered around the, the temple, the Torah, and the, the city walls. And uh, the second is major section that we're going to jump in here today with is Nehemiah 8 through what I'm calling 12a. And uh, this basically the first part of chapter 12. And then the finer, final section, major section, will be uh, the, the end of Nehemiah 12 and then mainly Nehemiah uh, 13. And... Um, so we're going to just jump right in here to, to Nehemiah chapter 8. And this really is the, the climax. Or if we're going to continue to use the kind of the, the mountain climbing metaphor, this is uh, really what turns out to be a false summit. We think that it is a summit. If On your first reading, if you were to, to read uh, this book, this scroll, you would think that we've, we've reached the the pinnacle. We've reached the climax. We've made it to the peak. This is going to be the moment, and we'll see why here in a second. Um, and then we'll get to chapter chapter thirteen. We'll get to the, the end of the book. But this is what appears to be the the climax of the story. So by now, you know we've I've I've said this you know a whole bunch of times. Um, but all of the ways that we have looked at uh, the authors of this story weaving it and portraying it in such a way that God is actively present. This is the word. Remember the whole scroll open that this is uh, fulfilling that which the prophet Jeremiah spoke of. And then we we see all of the, the references to the Exodus and Israel coming out of bondage and coming out of exile, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of the land, 
all of these things, all linked through the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And that case has been building and opposition has been coming up against them from the people of the land. And we had the issue of mixed marriages and the people have you know, done their best to, to come out uh, and be a, a people set apart to God. And they've uh, reestablished or recommitted themselves to the covenant, uh, which is going to happen actually here again uh, in, this, in this scene. And so there's all of these different things that have happened that are all building really to, to, this, to this moment. And um, from Nehemiah 8 through 12, we get the climax of, of the, whole, the whole story. And now this major section can kind of be itself split into two units, the first being uh, chapters 8 through 10, and the second being uh, 11, and then the, the first part of, of 12. And there's a different couple of ways that you could divide uh, those sections up, and I have those outlined on the notes that you can uh, download as a PDF in the description below on, on page 53 uh, that you can you can see that. Um, but what this story is going to, to bring us to is it's going to bring us to ultimately to the dedication of the city uh, or of, of Jerusalem and the temple uh, and God's people. Um, and it really, we're going to continue to see this. This is really supposed to be depicted as this kind of second Sinai moment. The echoes and allusions and undertones of Sinai and the Exodus, and then uh, the other one would be like the temple dedication, um, are just are just all over the place. And so uh, that's kind of where this section is going to be leading us. And the expectation, the expectation then, is that this moment would end up in climax as those moments did as well, which, uh, you know, there's an We've already spoiled this already, but that obviously is not going to happen. Uh, but if, if we were just reading the story, you know, that's as a, as a careful reader, as someone who knows the, the previous stories that's picking up on all of these illusions, that's waiting for the, the prophetic uh, kind of package of hope that we've talked about, that's where our mind would begin to drift forward too. And so uh, we'll, we'll kind of continue to trace that uh, as, we, as we go. So ne- Nehemiah 8 um, is this section where the, the people all uh, come, they all come together. Um, so the, the design here of this section specifically follows the pattern of the other covenant renewal services in, history, in Israel's history. Um, so if you go back and read about Asa in 2 Chronicles 15, and Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29 through 31, and Josiah in 34 uh, through 35, um, all of these dedication services where the people are dedicating themselves to God, because um, that's what's going on here in Nehemiah 8, is the people are, are giving themselves uh, over to God as the law, as the word is is being proclaimed. Um, 
it follows a pretty clear pattern in the history of of Israel. And and I I just don't, I have other stuff that I want to kind of highlight, but you can go back and read those passages and you'll be able to see the the places where they are similar and the places where they where they differ. These moments, including uh, this one under Ezra, are depicted not just as people recommitting themselves um, to God, even maybe how we would, would think of it, but as really a reforming of God's people, meaning that it is a depiction that these are the new remnant people, the, the sons of Abraham that are carrying out the promise given to their fathers. It's the, these are the remnant people that are the ones uh, saying, yes, we are the, the carriers of the promises to our fathers. So in, in these moments, in the ones that I mentioned uh, in, in Second Chronicles, but also here in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, these people are declaring themselves as the Mount Sinai people, the Exodus people, the Passover people, the chosen people. All of the language that we could say, the ones in whom the, the law and the prophets, the word and the promises and the presence of God has been entrusted in where he, where he dwells. And so Nehemiah 8 specifically is divided kind of into two scenes, each of which portray Ezra as this new kind of Moses and as the people uh, being the returning remnant to God's covenant. And again, this all echoes Sinai when Moses receives the law. So the, the first scene in Ezra or in Nehemiah 8 is uh, verses 1 through 12, uh, which opens with this, this scene of Israel gathering together uh, in unity as one man. And there I think you can even, I think obviously that's a statement of unity, uh, but you can even hear echoes of Adam as the the first man, uh, the Adam. And we've already looked at allusions uh, that the writer has made to the Eden story previously uh, as the man who received God's word uh, and was called to follow God's command and failed. And now these people are coming as one man to receive God's word again. So I think there's even some echoes to the Eden story here as well. And we saw the the issue, the issues between man and wife and all that kind of stuff. So there's all kinds of, I think, illusions here as well. Uh, but this uh, first scene, we get this constant refrain. It's actually, I counted, it's 13 times you get the the word, uh, the people. So it's, it's the collective that is at the center stage. It's the people who we're told are gathering, the people who tell Ezra to bring up the law and Moses and read it. It's the people who stood there all day and listened attentively to the reading of the of the of the, the of the Torah of the law. It was the people who they built a platform for Ezra to stand on, which is an echo, I think, to Moses being on the mountain at this elevated place. So the people build this elevated place for the new Moses to stand and hear God's word. Uh, or who has received God's word and speak it over the people. And obviously then we hear, we see allusions to that even in Jesus in uh, the Sermon on the Mount where it says he stands up on a high place and he speaks uh, the, the law, he speaks the word uh, to God's people, right? And so I think you can draw even a line, a line there as well. And so it's the people are, are at the, the, the forefront. And again, the, the illusion I think clearly in the mind of the author is where all of the people of Israel gather around Mount Sinai to to hear God 
speak to them and to receive uh, his word. And so the gathering, we're told, happens on the seventh day of the month, uh, or the first day of the seventh month, excuse me, which ironically is the same day that Zerubbabel dedicated the temple in Ezra 3, 4, and 6. So again, there's connection there as well, right? So they dedicate the temple on the the first day of the seventh month in Ezra 3. And now they're they're receiving God's word on that same day. And it's because those two realities are connected as well, uh, because the, the temple is the new Sinai. It's the, the, con- the connecting place of heaven and earth, and it's also the place from which God's word goes forth. Now, we also know from the Torah that the first day of the seventh month is the first day of the Feast of, of Trumpets, um, which is supposed to be this holy day of rest um, and convocation, uh, which began a, a seven-day feast. And so um, there's this undertow here of, of uh, the feast of trumpets uh, and also this connection back with, with Zerubbabel. So you get this idea of the people gathering. You also get um, a repeated word that clearly, to me, sticks out, and that is understanding. Um, so the people are told that they have understanding, they're being given more understanding, they're seeking understanding, they had understanding. Over and over it says that they're um, they're not there for on accident or in ignorance. And so the question is, why are, why is there this emphasis on the understanding of the people? I think as a good Bible student, we should just, that's a good question to ask. Well, by doing this, I think the author is essentially raising the issue of culpability, that these people know what they're doing, uh, and therefore they're liable to remain true to their word and faithful to the covenant. Okay, this is also, I think, meant to reflect well on the people, that they've completed all the rebuilding projects, and now they're ready to give themselves in faithful obedience to God as they restart their life back in the promised land, the land that God has given to them. And so you have the people gathering together, receiving God's word, hearing with understanding, together as one people, as kind of this new Sinai moment, and they they uh, give themselves uh, over to God. But then something strange happens. They, they're hearing God's word, and it says they begin to weep and cry, presumably, it doesn't exactly say this, but presumably over their own sin and more so over the sin of their people, right? That they've, this is why they went into exile, it's because of their unfaithfulness. And so they are mourning as they hear the, the, the Torah read to them. They're mourning their own uh, lack of faithfulness, their own sin. And then the, the leaders tell them to stop and tell them to go, go home, have a feast, and then share their food with the poor. Now, I think there's at least two things going on here. And I'm actually going to post, I don't know what order I'm going to do this in. I think I'll maybe do this first and then the reflection second, but I haven't decided yet. Um, I'm going to do a, a, an additional episode. I, I wrote a reflection on my Substack feed on this exact scene and the strangeness of the leaders telling the people to stop weeping over their sin and to go home and throw a party instead, and then feed the poor. So I don't want to go too much into it now because I'm going to do a whole episode on it. 
but I think there's at least two things going on here. One is there's a clear echo to Exodus 24 when Moses and the elders eat and drink with God on the mountain. And that's what I'm going to take up in my in my reflection, so I'll, I'll just leave that at that for now. But the other is actually uh, the feast, is this is the first day of the seventh month, which is the beginning of a feast. And so I think there's, you know, there's an appropriateness to, there's a season that they are supposed to be in. There, there is a, a proper timing in which they are living, and that is not the timing of fasting, it is the timing of feasting. And so they tell the people to go home and get ready and celebrate the feast and and um, and uh, share their food with the poor, which was also part of part of the feast of of trumpets. And again, we can contrast this back to Ezra three, where there was joy and weeping there as well. And but that kind of got was left unresolved. And now there is only weeping, and they tell them to go have joy. So there, there's more, I think, reflection that we could even do there about what it means for us to be, and, and I'm going to do this in, um, in another episode, what it means for us to be a fasting people uh, and a, a feasting people, what it means for us to be a weeping people and a joyful people. And I think there's something there for us, and I'm going to take that up in another episode, so I'll just, I'll just leave that leave that there. So that that is kind of scene number one here in Ezra 8. The second scene, which is the very next day, begins in verse 13, and it runs through the, the remainder of the chapter. And as the leaders gather the following day to read, this, uh, to read uh, and study the law, presumably so they could explain it more to the people, uh, they discover the commandment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, Leviticus says that tabernacles would begin on the 15th day of the seventh month, uh, which the Day of Atonement would be on on the 10th day. So this is like, this is major feast season for the people of Israel, that all of this is happening. And it seems that the leaders, um, that they read about this commandment on the second day of the month, and then they tell the people what's needed, and then two weeks later, uh, they observe the Feast of Tabernacles as prescribed in, in the law. And, and so this chapter culminates then in Tabernacles, which again brings us back to Moses and this being a new exodus. Uh, and people have just wandered through the wilderness, and they've come back from exile, and now they are celebrating God's faithfulness, provision, protection, and His presence among them. And by now you may go, okay, I get, why do we have to keep coming back to this new Exodus, second Exodus, second Moses kind of thing? And what, I want to make a brief comment on that because it, it has come up, I think, in basically every single episode so far. And there's a reason for it. One is I think as good Bible students, we want to just go where the text takes us and when something continues to be highlighted, it is for a reason. It's not by accident. It's not just because. It is for a reason. And so what's the reason here? Well, I think the reason, at least one of them, is the Exodus is the controlling story of salvation in the Bible. 
It is the meta-narrative of salvation in all of the Scripture, from Old to New Testament. When you want to understand what it means that God is the God who saves and delivers, where we should go is the Exodus. That is the, the foundational event. It is the foundational story. It is what the prophets in the Psalms and Jesus always, always, always and continually come back to, and they never get away from it from beginning to end. Even when we're in the life of Abraham and God is forming this covenant with this this man and his family, one of the very first things that God does in Genesis 15, after he calls him out, is he tells Abraham, one day your people are going to go and be slaves in another land, and then I will deliver them. And so from the very beginning of the story, even the seeds are not even, you know, they're just overtly planted. They're like, hey, this is going to happen, just to let you know. And then you're going to take a slave girl who's also an Egyptian, and then you're going to oppress her because one day they are going to oppress you. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere, even before it happens. Joseph, this huge, you know, the final movement of the book of Genesis is all about him down in Egypt. Um, and so the authors are purposefully tapping into that story because it is the meta narrative story that kind of holds everything else together. And why that's important for us is because Jesus taps into that same story when he is trying to explain his own crucifixion, his own death, his own salvation. He does so by drawing on the Exodus story as the Passover lamb. He does it during Passover. Um, he, you know, we, we speak about his blood. He holds the feast at night, just like they did the night of the Passover, right? That's, there's all of these, these allusions to the Passover event and the Exodus in Jesus' life and then obviously in his death. Uh, that we need eyes to see this story. And so I, I purposely want to continue continue to, to bring it up. So the, the chapter here culminates on tabernacles. And so if you go back and read more about uh, tabernacles, what you'll see is that also every seventh year, the Feast of Tabernacles... Um, um, every seventh year during the Feast of Tabernacles, excuse me, they would read the law aloud. And so I think Ezra reading the law aloud and then the reference to uh, the timing of Tabernacles, I think whether it was the seventh year or not, that's how it's being portrayed. And one of the things that also happens in that seventh year is it's the the year that they forgive debts and release slaves the, the land gets to rest and they feed the poor, which is another reason I think that they're telling them to go home feast and, and feed the poor. So all that to say that all of these these cycles of, of seven years uh, in, in the feast, they're built on this pattern of creation, rest, and then new creation. There's a, there's a, a Genesis kind of pattern. And so as the people come into the land uh, to begin a new life as God's people, uh, they're painted here as 
coming into God's rest and blessing, and then out the other side as as God's new creation. These are the new remnant people, right? According to the author, then this is a, a new kind of exodus people who have come out of the wilderness and are now receiving God's word and responding in faith. They are God's new creation, just like God told them at the mountain, you are my special treasure, my holy people, a royal priesthood to me, right? This is These are all the same echoes that we're getting here. So they are God's new creation. The old things have passed away. The slaves, which they were, have been set free. The land is allowed to rest. The poor are being taken care of and fed, and they are being made as God's uh, chosen and special remnant and people. And so these truly were the words of the prophets coming true. This was God's new creation dawning. This was the the eighth day, uh, the holy the holy day to the Lord in which the creation and rest has been completed and now something new has been brought forth. And that is what chapter 8 is really is really trying to bring us into, that that is what is happening uh, before our eyes. So chapter 9 opens only a few days after the Feast of Tabernacles would have ended. And the, the tone could not be any more different. Now we're in... Chapter 9 is this great uh, prayer of uh, Ezra praying, and it is all about repentance and their sin and their brokenness. And he does this, I mean, it's just a beautifully structured prayer on page 58 of the notes. I, I, I have a, the whole prayer structured down to basically the, every verse or two, where he is walking through the whole history of God's people, from creation to Abraham to the Exodus to specifically the golden calf and the wilderness and the conquest and the judges and the prophets. And then it culminates at the end in in verses 32 and 38 in this uh, confession, this corporate confession of sin and this pledge to be faithful. And it's just this absolutely beautiful piece of of prayer from, from Ezra that walks all of the all of the the people through the history uh, of their their own people and the final appeal and and I, I don't want to we, we don't want to I don't want to have time to get through to work through the whole prayer you can see that in the notes but I do want to point out one thing that the final appeal to of Ezra is that they are they are still and this is what he says, they are still slaves in the land that was promised to them. And this is um, claim is again repeated in, in verse 36 when he just says that we are slaves currently. Now, this is an interesting claim because they're not slaves. Remember, when he's praying this, the first people got released like almost a hundred years ago at this point. They've been here for two, however you want to count generations, but two entire generations, they've been back now. But he says that we are still slaves in this land, right? In fact, they're not only not slaves in their land, they were freed from exile and supported multiple times by multiple kings, multiple uh, emperors, rulers, so then why does Ezra claim that they are still 
slaves. This is when we see a, a phrase like that in in scriptures when reading, we want to just pause and ask, well, that doesn't actually quite fit. What is the, the purpose of that statement? And just begin to reflect on it a little bit. And so I think there's a few things going on. First, I think that it's a theological claim connected with the use of the word land in the prayer, specifically Egypt, which is a, makes up a good portion of the prayer, that they were slaves in Egypt, and now, Ezra claims, they're slaves here in this land. And they're slaves because they, they still are not experiencing all that God has promised them. And they know that they're not experiencing that still because God's presence has still not come among them, but we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Secondly, this claim of slavery draws upon the messianic expectations grounded in the words of the prophets, which again framed the whole book, that God would raise up a, a branch to sit on the throne of David and reign as a king. And that you can read about that all over Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah 33. And this promise is directly tied to the, tied to the return of the exiles and the promise being fulfilled specifically that the land given to Abraham and King David in Jeremiah 33, 26. And so now that the people are back in that land and have been for some time, they still don't have their anointed king. The branch of David, the promised one to sit on the throne and rule over them, he still has not come. So they have recognized, yes, the temple's rebuilt, but the presence has not come. Now we've committed ourselves to God. We've rebuilt the city, but we still don't have the Messiah. And so here, I think, in the story, I think this is the, the characters, this is their first clear recognition that they recognize that something is, is not right. Now, we, we know now, because we've read and know where this story is, is going to end, we know that they're correct, that everything is not right, and that that Messiah is still far away, and is, but will come, obviously, in Jesus. But what they thought they were living in in that day is not, was not really what they thought. This is, in the, in the cosmic sense, this was not the day of the Lord that they thought that it was. God was surely moving. God was surely acting. God was surely doing things in their midst. In their midst, but the Messiah does not come here as they expected. So this is, I think, their first recognition that something we we're still lacking something here, which is, I think, just important to notice for us as readers because it it gives us a, a, a an easy connection point into the story of Jesus, who then is obviously the fulfillment of of those promises. And so. Ezra's claim to be a slave then is a way to express the messianic hope of the people that they would not live in their land under some foreign rulership, but under God's anointed king. And this, now we're just directly into the life of Jesus, where people are constantly putting pressure on Jesus. When will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And even when when Jesus is standing before Pilate and he asks him, are you not a king? 
And the implication is, if you're a king, why are you not trying to start something here? And Jesus, recognizing, says, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world, because if it was of this world, my my followers would fight. They would start an uprising. They would start a revolt. But that's not how my, my kingdom my kingdom operates. So now we're clearly in the territory of Jesus, and there's all kinds of, I think, reflections that we could we could make there and that you could make there and, and that I invite you to go and, and do on your own. And so it's because of all this that Ezra's solution is to reaffirm their covenant commitment uh, that they've made and specifically, they, he says that he, he has the princes, the Levites, and the priests sign it and, and seal it. And in the rest of chapter 9, uh, the very end of chapter 9 here, into chapter 10, we get this, uh, another one of those beautiful chiasms where we get the different people who are engaged in this recommitment um, structured out, and Nehemiah himself is at the center of, of this, this chiasm. And so the scene then culminates in all of the people coming together to recommit themselves to follow the Torah of Moses and live a life of faithfulness like Abraham, uh, who was obviously the recipient of the covenant promises that they are hoping for. And those that come are described as having separated themselves from the people of the land. Now, think back to Ezra 9 and 10, where we had two chapters where that was the major issue. And so now sometime later, we have another reference to, and the people who come, they have done that. Now, how widespread was it everybody? How did they work that out? What about the women and the children? How did that actually take place? The text just simply doesn't say, and and I I think our modern minds would like to know some of those things, and I think rightfully so. But the text just does not does not say of what how that happened, took place, when, and and all of that kind of stuff. And so they recommit themselves to the Mosaic Covenant and the blessings and the curses that come with it um, that you can see in, in Deuteronomy twenty eight and. The covenant that they make is divided into kind of three sections. Uh, the first is the the uh, the issue of intermarriage that they're they're not going to do that. They're not going to commit themselves to to the people of the land. Uh, the second is Sabbath that they're going to observe the Sabbath. Specifically, uh, they're not going to buy or sell any goods or grain from the people of the land uh, on the Sabbath, or a holy day. And we will come back to that in chapter 13. And finally, uh, the temple, that they are going to maintain the services of the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, financial support, all of those kinds of kinds of things. And, and again, we will come straight back to that in chapter 13. There is some clear foreshadowing here in, in really all three, but particularly in the Sabbath and the temple section. Um, that is is going to come flying right back in our face in in uh, chapter in chapter thirteen, and so it's clearly no coincidence that the contents of their covenant with God co- coincide with the the issues of their day. Right, they are uh, recommitting to the temple which they've rebuilt. 
They've had issues with inter intermarriage, and now they are in this around this cycle of feasts and festivals, and so they are giving themselves to committing to the Sabbath and and the holy days, right? So, there. This is a great example, I think, of they are taking the issues of their day, and they are taking them very seriously. They're reflecting on their own moment and and committing themselves to God. And and we're all called to do the same thing in our own day. There are challenges that every generation and every people in every place face that are somewhat unique, or at least maybe a a slightly unique flavor of a more universal uh, experience that we all have. But we have to we have to be aware of those things as best we can and commit ourselves to follow God in the midst of those things uh, as, as best we can. And so we'll, we'll end here with this. The, the, the totality of the message is clear, that these people are committing themselves to be the people that God has always called them to be. You remember at the very beginning of this in, in Nehemiah 8, uh, they came together as one man. And we said that that, I think, is... One of the ways to read that is a reference back to Adam, who was the image of God. Or we could say it another way, that, that he is was supposed to be the image of what humans were always supposed to be. And these people are have come together as that one man to say, we will be those people. Uh, we will be this, this new kind of man together. Uh, not individually, but together. And we will be the people that God has always called us to to be, that they will remain faithful to God in all ways and become image bearers uh, of God to the nations, that the nations would eventually come come to know God. And where their fathers failed, the sins that they've now acknowledged in the prayer of chapter 9 and repented of, uh, that they will not. They will keep themselves holy, chosen, and as a as a distinct people. And so they, they come together and they make these commitments uh, before before God. And that brings us to the close of chapter 10, and we will stop there. We'll do uh, 10 and 11, or 11 and 12 in the next episode, and we'll see how we're doing for, for time. Uh, if we just go straight into 13, uh, or if uh, if we break those up in, into two. but uh, So we'll have one or two episodes left here, and then I do want to do a third uh, and final one that kind of reflects on the study as a whole and kind of just put a bow on everything as well. So, uh, but with that, we will end for now and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for stopping by.